Hi, I'm Fred Schonenberg, and thank you for joining me on the Venture Fuel podcast. At Venture Fuel, we help companies find new solutions by partnering with the best startups from around the world. On the show, you'll learn the secrets of business leaders who tap into startups and the founders driving extraordinary results. We'll consider new ideas, stretch our mindsets beyond the status quo, and in the process, discover how to leap the competition and fuel personal growth. Hey everyone, this week on the Venture Fuel Podcast, we have a live recording from our Future of FinTech event, which happened the last Thursday in February 2022. It is a dynamic panel of thought leaders tackling everything from cryptocurrency to blockchain uh, and how we're going to be interacting financially in the future. Hope you enjoy. Hey, everyone. I'm Fred Schonberg. I'm the founder and CEO of Venture Fuel. Thank you so much for joining us today for our Future of FinTech event. Couldn't be more excited about the speakers that are joining us there, the main event. We'll get to them very quickly. As the video kind of showcased, I started Venture Fuel eight years ago. And the whole idea was how could we help large organizations innovate faster? And we believe the secret to doing that is through collaborations with startups and emerging technologies. And there are a few industries that have been more disrupted, have more change happening in them than financial services. So we're so excited about the sort of emergence and convergence of all those technologies uh, and bringing this group of experts together today to talk about it. From blockchain to crypto to ambient banking, it's a really exciting time coming together and the world of fintech is just exploding with challenges and opportunities. As you saw in the video, Venture Fuel works with organizations from Coca-Cola to AARP Foundation to the state of California to tackle existing business challenges and provide new solutions. This can come to form with new growth platforms as well as efficiencies to existing business units. At the end of the day, we're about providing tangible results that outperform the status quo. And that's what today is all about. We wanted to start off at the beginning here with a couple of fintech startups that we're excited about, almost as a, an appetizer for the main event that we're going to get to. We recently worked with Comcast on a really exciting challenge. It was looking at enabling capital and credit opportunities for underrepresented communities. So just a couple stats. In 2020, 41% of Black-owned businesses, 32% of Latino businesses, and 30% of women-owned companies closed, gone. Of those that survived, 80% are experiencing financial challenges, yet access to capital is really hard and antiquated. For those communities. So we went out to look at startups and emerging technologies that could provide new solutions to the systemic challenge. We sourced globally, as you saw in the video, uh, we've, we've got sort of our ways of finding what's out there and what's emerging. And, and two companies went on to receive investment from Comcast and are a perfect example of our view of collaboration around challenges. Uh, the first is Honeycomb Credit, small business loans crowdfunded by the community. What most people don't realize is community banks are basically disappearing. And what that does is it limits small business owners from getting the loans they need to make their businesses thrive. This kind of took the idea of crowdfunding and enabled you to invest as a community in those small businesses that are right down on Main Street. The second company that came out of that was Solo Funds. This is a community of itself, which allows members to easily access and supply short-term funds for immediate needs. So think about if you needed $100 to pay for a cable bill or for heat or whatever it might be, 
rather than sort of messing with your credit, you could go on to solo funds and request that from friends in the community. It's anonymous, right? Uh, so there's none of that sort of embarrassment, but you can get it and, and the lender sets their terms. So it's a little bit less predatory than some of the other ways of kind of getting quick cash to cover a short-term uh, financial situation. So brilliant founders providing new solutions to these challenges in new ways. Really exciting. The third startup and the last startup I'll mention to you is just sort of something to get us excited today is Mantle. So Mantle's focused on omni-channel banking. The idea is the smaller banks and regional banks and credit unions don't have the automation tools to enable you to sign up digitally or, or even open up your checking account and manage that digitally. So they're providing that resource for the regional banks uh, to enable them to kind of leapfrog their competition and get closer to the consumer. I feel like there's such a good example of what we try and do with our corporate clients in that we can tackle an existing today problem with emerging solutions that meet your business where you are. It's also kind of a good example of our, our global innovation network in that the founder or the co-founder of Mantle is someone that we had met eight years ago when he was a co-founder of a different startup. And it's why we can keep this community of ours alive to help us find what's next now. Okay, so speaking of that, enough of me talking. You guys are all warmed up. What I'd like to do is, is move to the main event. I'd like to welcome to the virtual stage, Kristen, Nisha, and Dax. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So I thought what would be great is if in your own words, each of you could introduce yourselves uh, and what you do to kind of level set everybody tuning in, and then we'll dive into some specific questions. So Kristen, why don't, why don't we start with you? Yeah, great. Um, super excited to be here today. Uh, my name is Kristen Smith. I'm the executive director of the Blockchain Association, which is the trade association based in Washington, D.C., representing the cryptocurrency industry. And we work on public policy issues and then try to get those policies implemented. So we represent uh, about 80 companies in this space. Uh, we have a team of 13 full-time people and are continuing to grow uh, as, as the sector grows. So happy to be here. Perfect. And Nisha? Yeah, Nisha Desai. I'm the CEO and Managing General Partner of Ondav Capital, which is a New York-based investment firm focusing on early-stage tech-enabled companies with both underserved founders and impact-aligned value drivers strictly for alpha. So it's a non-concessionary strategy focused on early-stage tech companies that are really working on, on problems for the bottom 99%, but from a non-concessionary way. And many of the investments we've made in the last uh, two years have been in, in fintech and software, but in marketplaces, but mostly fintech. Perfect. Thank you. And Dax, how about you? I'm Dax. I am CEO of Global Transform. Uh, I am involved in lots of different ventures at the moment, either from a advisory perspective or from actually um, sitting on the main board. It's quite an interesting space having worked in fintechs directly, but also in some of the major global banks. There's a lot of synergy around that. And Fred, I, I do like uh, what you talk about around the collaboration um, into the future. There's lots of op exciting opportunities there. I love it. Well, Kristen, can you dive a minute deeper into the Blockchain Association? What is it? And then maybe a, a tougher question is, why does crypto matter to the mainstream banking sector? Yeah, we're well, getting a little deeper into what we do. Um, we really have sort of three primary functions. We create public policy positions, whether that be on regulation or legislation or in some case like litigation. 
for what we think the right regulatory structure should be for the cryptocurrency industry. Uh, then we have a team that goes and advocates to get those implemented. Um, and then we have a communications team that works on the messaging and tries to educate a broader audience. But you know, I, I think what's going on in the crypto world is is really important for the banking sector um, and all financial services because I, you know, when I when when I first learned about fintech, my understanding of fintech it was the application of sort of common technologies to the traditional, you know, sort of financial services world and trying to find it easier easier ways for consumers to to interact with those services. But with crypto networks, you know, these are, you know, Bitcoin is a very simple example, but there's obviously much more complex ones. You know, they have these layer one chains like Ethereum, which is very popular. These are supercomputers that are enabling applications that are basically reworking the entire back end of the financial services system. So instead of just sort of putting a technological wrapper around these services, it's really rethinking the entire way that these things are done. And there's just so many things that can be done with these smart contracts on top of these blockchains that it really often takes the intermediary out of a lot of the transacting or the lending that, that's happening. I think the challenge is, though, that this is a really, really complex infrastructure and you have to be incredibly technologically sophisticated to do it. And so there's going to continue to, despite the fact that the whole innovation is you can get rid of intermediaries, there's still going to be intermediaries because there's going to be a lot of consumers and users that, you know, want to access cheaper, faster services. But you know, at least at this phase until the user interface improves, you know, they're going to need help in doing that. And so I just think it's going to, you know, really change the way a lot of services are provisioned in the years and decades ahead. And so I think that institutions are going to want to pay attention to this and figure out how how to take advantage of it and be a part of um, these major changes as opposed to be behind the ball. I love it. And Dax, I love your thoughts on that as somebody that has sort of navigated so many different digital transformations at the large institutions. You and I have talked before about collaboration and, and how you can kind of make some of these huge changes happen. Do you have any sort of like quick reactions to, to what Kristen was just talking about and maybe how, how you would think about it? It's a fascinating space. And, uh, you know, I'd, I'd echo Kristen's thoughts around this. What I, what I would say is, you know, I mean, clearly financial services is an industry that has gone through many, many transitions. Uh, I remember years ago when I, when I was um, writing my dissertation in payments, international payments, and, and looking at the ecosystem then, if I go back even, you know, online banking, you know, a decade, a decade or so ago, it's now like n- nothing else. It's part of a, a channel within the, you know, the banking system. So at the time, you know, bringing online into major institutions that was a transformation in itself. But actually, once you've gone through these transformations many, many times, you see how that sits and fits within the infrastructure. Having said that, technology is really coming into its own. So, you know, the folks that really understand the technology stack, the infrastructure, there are many, many ways to transact. And it's great to understand the technology, the layering, you know, the, 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 the crypto, um, being able to rack and stack the different ways that payments come in. But it is really about being customer centric and client centric. And then if you take the neobanks, really, really interesting because they come from a different place. And clearly we've gone through the pandemic. So, you know, that digital first culture is there. So I think the marketplace in the nicest sense is fitting up because there are different ways to approach this. There are some fantastic global banks 
that work really well. There are some really talented um, neobanks as well that sort of bring this together. But really, it's going to be in the medium term about delayering in the nicest sense, because if you're sitting at the end of a transaction, you don't really mind how it works, to be honest. But I know I don't want 20 ways to transact. I want my way to transact. So that gets really interesting. And then you take, you know, Gen Z and all the rest of it. You know, if I look at, you know, my own family, you know, my children, they don't want to touch anything when they move money. They want to say, Alexa, you know, move it from here to here. That's <laughs> it. And I think I've got Alexa talking now in the background. Having said that. That's <laughs> great. My technology and all that. It all worked. Yeah, we're all plugged in. But yeah, I mean, that is really that is really the new way forward. So, you know, my belief is yes, take the technology, but actually taking taking that forward and and you know looking at voice as well. I'm a firm believer that your voice is your passport. And I know we've got face as well, but it's going to be about then the cyber side of things and the right securitization in the nicest sense. So Nisha, you've you spent your career in tech and financial services. What's been misunderstood or, or notable about the evolution of those industries over the last, I don't know, say 10 to 15 years to the fintech landscape we find ourselves in today? Yeah, it's certainly been an interesting perspective to see the evolution of the regulatory interest from one to the other and how that has actually impacted product development and market development. So, you know, if we think about it, it's hard to believe it's been 15 years since Bear Stearns and the subprime mortgage crisis that precipitated the global financial crisis, uh, which then, of course, launched Dodd-Frank and MIFID and a number of global regulatory regimes meant to address systemic risk and various areas of banks, right, traditional financial services companies who spent the good part of the decade, the last decade, working on remediation and really being on their heels to earn the trust of governments and global regulators so that they could have the license to innovate on product again. And very much the mindset of the Fed, the OCC, many other regulators were, until you get your historical houses in order, we're not on board to underwrite new innovations that introduce more risk uh, to your firms, even if they were to move um, top line growth. So this is what was going on for the most part in traditional uh, financial services firms, but they were innovating. It's a common misconception to think that global firms were uh, Luddites and, and slow to innovate. They were just working on the middle and back office systems, such as custody and clearing, KYC reporting, risk management, rationalization of legal entities, et cetera. That is not very front and center to the average you know, Wall Street Journal reader or retail banking audience. Meanwhile, we had in Silicon Valley, fintechs emerging in the neobank and BNPL uh, area that were getting funded and VCs over there not asking many of the questions that I think New York-based investors asked or would ask today. And a lot of the early innovation we saw in fintech driven from the West Coast, in specifically these two areas, BNPL and neobanks, traditional banks could not participate in. Again, because during this time, they, they had lost the license to innovate effectively. I would argue that some of these innovations are probably a blessing uh, for the, the global financial players to not have participated in because they were unsustainable business models. So I think that a lot of BNPL for developed markets, particularly the US, has been predicated on low interest rates, on a lot of dry powder and VC there to sort of top up uh, new financing rounds and driven by more momentum as 
non-traditional investment players uh, moved into late stage investing, as well as the fact that um, risk frameworks haven't been really tested. Volatility hadn't occurred to test BNPL and, and neobanks. And uh, I think that not all of that innovation is actually helpful to the end consumer, especially in the United States, who probably needs a way to you know, make money and store money and develop credit and save rather than spending more money and reducing their own liquidity. Well, it's interesting. So a few quick points. One, for those of you listening uh, in the chat, fire away, ask questions. We want this to be very interactive and we want everyone here uh, is, is very excited to answer your questions. So please throughout, pepper them in, we'll work them into the conversation. The second piece is, is I kind of want to turn back to you, Dax, on this thinking through the opportunity for industry leaders in this space. I think we're all talking about very interesting angles of this in that you know, you've got a highly regulated industry. You've got VC sort of pumping in, lots of money for innovation, startups trying new things. And then I'll call it legacy banks, but they're not sitting by, right? They're innovating in lots of different ways. And also consumers are at the heart of all of this. And the last 20 months plus, right, have really changed consumers' expectations and also maybe pushed some of these innovations forward. So just curious from your standpoint, what is the opportunity for industry leaders in the space to leverage tech to unlock value? Great question, Fred. I'm um, a huge amount of opportunity, but I am going to take us back to the client and the, and the customer in the nicest sense, because that's why we're here. That's why we do business. And, you know, I do want to bust some of those myths in the marketplace. It, it's almost, you know, if you're a large organization, then that implies slowness. It doesn't actually. Some of the largest organizations are tremendous. And equally, the other side of it is if, you, if you're a fintech or a neobank, then, you know, you're not aligned with regulation or compliance. Quite the opposite. Some of the best neobanks that I'm aware of and, and work with, they are very focused on that. In fact, they will do their own regulation and self-compliance prior to going into the marketplace. So I do think we need to level out the marketplace within that. But then we need to take it back to, you know, you, me, anyone on this call, you know, we are all sitting there. And, you know, what is it all about, really? It's all about making uh, life easy, seamless, simple. You know, payments is an enabler to life. And, that, and that's, you know, whatever organization we're coming from, that's really what the opportunity is. Now, as a client or a customer, you tell me that, you know, this is based on blockchain technology or we've got some crypto in there or actually, you know, we just know how to sell gold. Whatever that may be, I don't really mind as long as the item that I want, I'm able to pay for and it's on a 5.9 service. So you've got that um, consistency. Having said that, I do believe now in the, in the next generation, that is the ticket to the party. The real industry leaders are very switched on and focused on the social and the societal good. Um, you know, I look at, you know, Dan Shulman and, um, and PayPal, fantastic. He has built that into the ingrained DNA of the culture of the company so that, you know, when we're looking at payment systems, it's actually, you know, how do they fit with the eco stack? Is that really built into the culture and really driving that view forward? So, you know, I would echo Nisha's view in that, you know, predominantly investment now post-pandemic, I mean, the doors are open, the amount of venture investment, there's lots there, 
but it's about being very specific on the business model and being very precise as to where you place it in the marketplace, irrespective of your background. And I think that's really, to your point, Fred, that's really the leadership opportunity. And, you know, that is the sweet spot that I now see. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I had sort of a personal banking moment this morning where I needed to send money to somebody we'd rented a, a place for the long weekend and it was Venmo and it was done. Boom. Like didn't know the person, da, 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 like just quick, there's the money, it's done. And then I had to put together my mortgage payment, which happens every month with the same people that know they have all my money already. Right. And it was like, I had to move from one account to the other and it was really slow and, and just so frustrating. And I think as a consumer, you have these moments where we are now exposed to such convenience in our life and we expect every other part of our life to go that way. And I think you know, the potential for blockchain and Chris, and I'm coming back to you here is that like, if there are smart contracts and they can take away some of the friction that is there to protect consumers. And, and I know that from a business standpoint, that the reason it's harder for me to pay my mortgage is because I'm being protected and there are multiple people. And so the, the house of cards doesn't fall. But I think that there, there is a potential here to reimagine everything and, and make it that seamless. And can you speak to that a little bit, Kristen? Yeah, no, I mean, listen, I think that if you look, a lot of the friction that you talk about that's been put in place has been put in place by regulations that are aiming to protect consumers really from human error, right? Or human, uh, you know, bad intentions of humans, right? When you go get a loan, there's a bunch of things in place to make sure that you're not you know, the loan officer isn't discriminating against the person who's there. Or, you know, when you have somebody who's taking custody of your funds, there's a bunch of regulations in place to make sure that they're not running away with the money. And this adds cost and it adds time. What's really cool about these, you know, DeFi applications that are basically these smart contracts on top of blockchains is, you know, in the code, you can put in all of the parameters needed to prevent a lot of the things that you see with sort of like human-based, you know, services. And so the risks are, are very different. Now, it doesn't mean there aren't other risks um, because, you know, you, you need to make sure that that code doesn't have bugs in it and um, that everybody has, you know, tested that thoroughly. And, you know, as I mentioned before, there's really the real challenges technological sophistication that's needed to interact with these. But the pieces are there to, you know, lower the cost and and speed things up. I think, you know, one of the pieces that's missing is going to be, you know, finding the right kind of regulation for the new risks and, and really even taking it a step back and figuring out what those risks are to begin with that need the regulation. I mean, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. But, you know, if you used to think about, you know, communications, you've put something in the mail and put a stamp on it and hoped it got to the other end. And, you know, now we just start communicating all day long with people all around the world. And, you know, at the time, I don't think anybody was complaining with the postal service, but, you know, it's actually turned out to be pretty great that we can communicate with people um, instantaneously. And so if we can do that with the transfer of value, um, you know, I think that could open up a lot of really cool services um, and, and new sort of innovative applications that, none of us even, you know, probably have even thought of yet. So it's a really great uh, potential and and should be the source of innovation for, you know, probably decades to come. It's funny, the the head of growth at Venture Fuel always says, uh, what if the postal service owned email? What if they had moved fast enough for that to be sort of their purview? Like what a different business it would be. 
and my other sort of story on this is when we did buy this house, we went through the documentation, right? The signing of the 500 pages that of course you can't read through all this stuff and you're live and there's four lawyers around the table and the whole thing. And they asked what, what I do and I explained it and they're like, oh, well, this process will never be disrupted. It's too complicated. And like, you know, I had the, like the signal go off of like, uh-oh, <laughs> that means you're about to get disrupted. And to your point, blockchain offers that opportunity to sort of decentralize that risk as it does in the finance market. I'd love to kind of pivot back to the regulatory change. And Kristen, maybe back to you on your priorities in terms of advocating uh, or advocacy for regulatory change. And then I'd love both Dax, uh, your thoughts, uh, as well as you, Nisha, on, on that environment. Because I think this collaboration and working together is, is sort of the secret to making this all go. But Kristen, can you talk specifically about what you're working on? Yeah, yeah. I think there are you know sort of four major policy areas right now that the companies working in the crypto space and the and the software developers, you know, working to build out these protocols and these applications care about. And um, you know, they and they very, you know, slightly in terms of, you know, whether this regulation would apply to a more centralized institution where they have customers versus these sort of decentralized protocols and how they fit in. But you know, I think one important piece of the ecosystem are these stable coins, these reserve backed stable coins. They allow for you know, people to move in and out of different assets very quickly. And there's been a lot of debate as to what regulation of these reserve backed stable coins should look like. Uh, there was a president's working group report this past fall. There's a lot of bills that have been introduced in Congress to address that. So that's number one. Number two is sort of the evolution of anti-money laundering, countering the financing of terrorism uh, regulation and how that applies, particularly to these DeFi protocols where you don't necessarily have an intermediary involved that can collect information and do reporting. And, and there are questions about, well, how can we make sure law enforcement has the tools that they need, given you know that there's nobody that's currently on the hook for providing this kind of information. So that's an ongoing debate. You know, there's also a lot of, um, you know, sort of tax policy issues out there and, you know, what kind of entities need to do tax information reporting. Um, you know, everybody seems to think that centralized crypto exchanges should do that. But then the question comes back to, well, what about when we, we lose the intermediary? How, how do we ensure everybody knows what taxes they owe? And then last but not least is the application of securities laws. I mean, this, this is a, a question that has been ongoing for many years, largely due to the fact that in the U.S. we have this investment contract that is under the definition of a security, and, and that's a, a, a difficult thing to interpret. And so, you know, these are all ongoing issues, but the sort of the core of it is, you know, what happens when, you know, you don't have a centralized company or, an, you know, financial institution that is responsible for the provision of a service? How can we make sure consumers are protected? How can we make sure you know, the markets are being conducted in a fair manner? And how do we you know, make sure law enforcement has the tools that they need? And so you know, these are not easy questions to answer. And, and further complicating it is the fact that the space is so complicated and yeah. it takes a really long time for policymakers to get up to speed. So, you know, I think this will all sort of address itself over time and, and that we'll end up getting good policy, but we need to slow down and really make sure we have a good sense of where this space is going before we, you know, get too far ahead of ourselves. So Nisha, when you, when you hear that as a fintech investor, slow down is not in the investor uh, vocabulary, right? 
So how do you evaluate opportunities in this space, knowing that there, there are so many, A, it's complex, but obviously the opportunity is massive. Uh, so just curious, your perspective as a fintech investor when you hear of sort of some of the challenges that are happening. I think I have a, a different perspective than most because I spent so much time in the aftermath of the global financial crisis and saw you know, the tail risks and tail costs of missteps. And we're now seeing that uh, with VC-backed fintechs as well. You know, in Silicon Valley, back in 2008 and 9, the phrase was, act now, apologize to the lawyers later. And on Wall Street, I think, especially after financial crisis, from the front office to the back office, folks knew that was not tolerable. And, you know, that's a lot of what uh, has conditioned me as an investor. When I look at fintech, I'm really looking at, is this a business model that's actually solving a real need in the banking system and for the consumers? Or is it just artificially propping up sort of a temporary market that's fleeting? And that's how I felt for about a lot of US uh, BNPL and, and neobanks, right? Neobanks and BNPL, great applications in emerging markets where they didn't have traditional infrastructure and are new to sort of identifying and tracking borrowers. We don't really have that problem in the US. We have a big consumer debt problem. So um, more responsible uh, financial management has been an interest for me and avoiding some of what I think is temporary and potentially not in the interest of consumers long-term is where I see the opportunity. And a lot of that is what I would say is in really unsexy areas, right? KYC and AML, uh, figuring that out for financial institutions is a big TAM and not something that seems so exciting probably to someone in the Valley who's used to financing, you know, Robinhood. But those are complex problems. And if we can, uh, sort of deal with that, it'll have a lot of ramifications, especially if we're we're uh, entering a more fragmented global world with sanctions rolling out in a sort of layered manner. I've watched banking, banks and financial institutions have to execute on changes in sanctions and OFAC regulation. And because they've had so much legacy debt, legacy accounts, M&A uh, in other countries to create the big institutions they are, it is actually very challenging to execute and to do correctly. And of course, if you don't, you know, you, you might be hauled before Congress for enabling terrorist activities against the, the country. And so, again, it's a big problem. It's not glamorous, but folks who can do it right are there to reap the rewards. I want to go to you, Dax, for a second, uh, back on the sort of priorities around regulatory change and how to make that happen. But also, uh, Nisha, you mentioned something that that leads into a question from the audience too around countries that are experiencing instability uh, and the opportunity there. So I'll come right back to you to ask that question. But Dax, I, I want to kind of round this out with your your perspective on uh, some of the regulatory changes needed and the advocacy behind it and how you think about that for the industry overall. Yeah, it's a really good, good, good question, Fred. And the way I look at it is that we're all here for societal good and we're all, you know, consumers, clients, customers, however we term it, depending on where we're from, you know, we all recognise that role and we all want to feel safe in that system. And we want to know that, you know, our identification checks are good. We want to know that KYC um, process is all set up. We want to know that's simple, though. Um, and this is the balance, right? So 
you know, if, if I look at the distributed world of the latest technologies, it's about taking those regulatory outcomes and those compliance outcomes and looking at them and redefining them in new ways. So the outcomes are still met. And I know some of the most progressive fintechs are the ones that are actively working with the regulators to look at how those outcomes are met jointly and really to break that down. But, you know, to the points made earlier, it is about redefining. So if the whole ecosystem has changed, who owns which part of that regulation and how that sits in the ecosystem will be different, but it's still possible. And so the most innovative and industry-leading fintechs are the ones that are driving that, and also some of the, the large banks as well. So, you know, let's keep the balance here. There, there are folks that are very, very good at providing that. And I know, you know, a lot of my background, it is fintech, it is large organisation as well, but a lot of my background has been sitting on compliance and regulatory boards and actually for Visa Europe actually setting up their regulatory committee. And so through that, you know, there's a great recognition of, new technologies but taking the outcomes which are customer and client outcomes and applying them in very different ways the key about it is simplification because the majority of the population see the complexity and there are a few that cut through that and are able to simplify the ecosystem and they are the ones that will become very influential in the industry because they're able to compute that and redefine the whole um, set around it. So, you know, without naming any names, that would be unfair, but I do see, you know, there are some folks and some organisations in the system that are really driving that proactively, and those will be the industry winners. They will be the industry winners. And, you know, if anyone comes to regulate them, it will be, we're already self-regulated, so the books are open. And not only are we self-regulated, but actually we're sitting on, you know, three different boards to influence the industry about the regulatory conduct around all of this. You know, what we do need with that is supportive openness with the recognition that, you know, we all stay within the guidelines of what's required. And it is, you know, it is busting those myths around one or other. Um, but that takes time. And it's a different type of collaboration. The folks that really understand that know exactly who their stakeholder set is. And it's an industry stakeholder set. And they're also highly respectful of the requirements of each of those stakeholders, because if they're doing their business properly, they would have met those requirements anyway. Now, day to day, there will always be a little bit of learning, but that's why we have industry collaboration. I think the simplification piece is, is so, so smart in all of this. And it, it also leads into a pretty hilarious uh, direct message uh, that I received during this, which was KYC, NPL. WTF. Uh, so for anyone that doesn't know the acronyms, because it, it is heavy, I'll, I'll give you my understanding of them that was fed to me by my team. KYC is Know Your Consumer, which is a standard due diligence process used by financial institutions and financial service companies to assess and monitor customer risk. KYC basically ensures that a customer is who they say they are. And NPL is a non-performing loan, basically a loan in which the borrower is default hasn't made any scheduled payments or principal or interest for some time. So, and I hope everyone knows what WTF is, uh, but just in the, in the idea of simplifying, I wanted to throw that out there. BNPL is buy now, pay later, which is also uh, hot and has been dropped here. So I have two questions from the audience we'll, we'll kind of throw in for the group and anyone who'd like to answer it, please jump in. The first is looking forward, how do some of these innovations play a role in countries 
that are experiencing instability. Tether as a cryptocurrency comes immediately to mind for countries with unstable currency. But what are other innovations you see expanding into these unstable countries? Well, I've got some thoughts. Um, I mean, one, I think Tether is kind of an interesting case, but these dollar-backed stable coins, you know, like USDC or Tether are, I think, really important because if you have a local currency that's fluctuating and you want to peg something to the dollar, you can purchase virtual currency, um, you know, that is stable. And so I think that's that's important when you have you know, either rapid inflation or deflation or or whatever, right? So that's important. But I think the real innovation of crypto um, is, um, you know, the fact that you can have conduct peer-to-peer transactions from your own wallet that you have custody of your funds, right? You know, there's this, with, with any cryptocurrency, you don't need to rely on a centralized organization. Um, you can have the option of self-custody. Again, it's not for everyone. It's a little bit complex to do. But, you know, if you are in Ukraine right now and you're thinking like, I need to get out of here, you might not be able to go to your bank and get your money. But if you have funds in crypto, and you have, you know, the private keys to access that, you know, you can go someplace else and still have your funds. Um, and, and I think that's a really, really important thing, you know, when we look at countries that are lacking stability. Nisha or Dax, do you want to tackle any innovations in unstable countries that you see that are interesting? Yeah, I think that CBDCs, which I'll define central bank digital currencies, is another area that's getting a lot of looks, I think, Maybe a year or two ago, only 30-something countries were evaluating whether that was something of interest. And now there's over 80 countries who have working groups on that. And even the in the U.S., that would have had applications. And, and what CBDCs can enable is just streamlined payments from a government to individual citizens, right? So if we look at the stimulus uh, money and the money that uh, was supposed to go to small banks, early on during COVID, some of that uh, didn't trickle to the right recipients correctly. And some of that ended up in in fraud schemes. And that is the appeal of these uh, CBDCs, especially in countries where there is less rule of law enforcement around capital markets. Dax, what about you? Well, I mean, it's interesting. So a currency is never going to replace human behavior. And instability comes from human behavior. So by all means, we can transact in all different currencies. If it's government backed, you know, that clearly, you know, whether we're talking about bonds or anything like that, it's always good to have a government back. However, that's as good as the government and that's as good as the behavior. So really, it does come down to societal behaviors. And then it's about looking at the different rails in the nicest sense that we put in the ecosystem, how we simplify that out. And really, you know, if I look at it from a global perspective, we are creating lots of different ways to transact and then we all get busy. But actually, as as the ecosystem starts to centralize and starts to look at this longer term view, there's opportunity to look at that. And that's where I do believe the stabilization will come from. But that will take a little bit of time because that will really need societal leadership to embed the easy thing is to create new versions of currencies, right? I mean, I, I say easy, it's relatively easy, clearly building a whole ecosystem doesn't happen overnight. It takes a little while, but in essence, that longer term 
view and that societal view is really what will drive that stability. And that is something that I do see in some nations and some organisations, but we've got a long, long way to go. Yeah, it's, we, our January event was on the metaverse. We ended up talking a fair amount about a game that was a basically pay to play. You earned crypto based on participating in this game. And it became a sort of breakout hit in the Philippines because the game coin was more stable than the economy, uh, the, the actual, the, you know, the, the country finances, right? Which is A, funny and B, like scary, right? So I, I think there's something pretty powerful here to get it right. But obviously human behavior is the big, big variable. We've got another question here that I hope I ask it correctly. Uh, essentially, it's, uh, it's from, it sounds like a founder uh, at a company called M Street X, and they're working with state agencies to support the ability to process transactions with an AI cloud, cloud-based fintech platform, if everyone followed that. So basically, the question is, how would you recommend getting VCs to look at a solution like that as viable, knowing that it has a, a big market, but that, as we just discussed, state and federal governments uh, are not moving maybe as fast as the founders would like. Would anyone like to tackle that one? I'm, I'm happy to go on that. So, look at the end of the day. Look, if you're if you're a VC, you're you're here to make money, right? Um, there are very um, societal focused VCs, and they will have you know the ESG agenda linked to that. And there are there are VCs that are focused on femtech, you know, whatever it might be. But at the end of the day, they'll be looking at the profit pool. They'll be looking at the leadership team, the management team. They'll be looking at the proposition. They'll want to know that you've got your tech right. But at the end of the day, it needs to stack up as a commercial proposition. And that's really where the conversation is. If I can explain to you a proposition and you look at me and go, I know that's going to make money and I know that's going to make money quickly. You have this amount of money to get you to here. If I give you this amount, I'm going to get a return X and we're going to do this for society, for, you know, the key stakeholder group, whether it be, you know, a consumer or client. And that comes through as a proposition, you know, your value drivers, then you're really cutting through that. Definitely no tech, but it's positioned in a completely different way. It sounds great. Nisha, any thoughts on that? That one? Is that? Good- yeah, I saw the question and I, I think it's uh, no different than any other potential startup pitching or, or sector, if the, the state and federal governments are your customers who you're trying to get to adopt the solution, it is well known that they are, the sales cycle is slow, but, you know, VC-backed companies have emerged and exist and there are specialist VC firms on it. In fact, I would point out that Andreessen Horowitz recently hired a very talented partner from General Catalyst. Uh, her name is Catherine Boyle to specifically focus on government solutions. Very, very interesting. All right, let's go to the next question uh, from the audience. What are your thoughts, and Kristen, I'm coming at you. What are your thoughts on the emergence of financial institutions offering products like mortgages that are crypto-backed? Crypto, in in theory, was supposed to have removed the intermediaries, but now crypto-backed banks are emerging. Will these simply scale to compete with traditional institutions? Yeah, no, listen, I think if you've seen... um, you know, there are a handful of examples out there where crypto companies have become banks, or you might have traditional banks that are, you know, looking to incorporate crypto, you know, based services into their banks. So uh, what comes to mind is, you know, uh, 
Anchorage uh, or Paxos or Protego, who all receive bank charters from the OCC, or if you look at something like Silvergate Bank or Cross River Bank, those are banks that um, you know both cater to crypto companies. But if you look at like Silvergate, they're incorporating and looking into potentially launching like their own stable coins. So a lot of um, innovation there. I mean, I think at the end of the day, there are going to be a lot of consumers that still want sort of a one-stop shop for all of their financial services. And right now, I think one of the biggest and most important roles these banks are playing is to you know, be able to custody crypto and keep it safe for their customers. But if you think it you know, one of the core functions of banks, it is it is to facilitate payments. And crypto, you know, these blockchains are are like a new set of payment rails, right? In many regards. And so to the extent that a bank wanted to become a node and connect directly to a blockchain, they would in theory be able to offer, you know, nearly instant, you know, settlement and transfer um, to facilitate payment activity. So I think there's a lot of innovation there. I think there are a lot of, you know, a small number of banks um, that are starting to experiment with how they can provide their customers better services. I think mortgages that are crypto backed are super interesting. You know, there is, I think, a lot of sort of cost efficiencies potentially there, um, you know, both on, you know, the speed side and also the record keeping side. And so a lot of cool innovation going on. Um, but yeah, I, I think that, I think that, um, you know, I think that for the next, you know, five to 10 years, there's going to definitely be a period where you have the crypto world and you have the tr- traditional world and they're going to be, you know, more or less one. Now where we are in, you know, 30, 40, 50 years, you know, maybe that's a different situation, but, you know, for the foreseeable future, I think that traditional financial institutions are going to continue to have a role to play and are going to be looking to integrate crypto-based, you know, products and services into their offerings. Dax, I would love your thoughts on on this just from the from the other side, from understanding how large large banks and financial institutions think about something like this. What how do you see this playing out? Mm, uh, interesting. Again, I come back to the consumer, the client, the customer. So if we're talking about mortgages, right, I'm going to make it really simple. I buy a house. I owe someone some money. I'm going to have to pay it back. That can be in 20 different currencies. And the bank or the neobank or whatever the organization will need to facilitate that set of transactions. Now, of course, banks have a central piece where they have a, a capital ratio that they need to meet with central authorities. And clearly, that means evolution for the central governmental departments as well in terms of being able to exchange between all these different mediums. So that will be no doubt, you know, probably a, you know, a, a three to five year conversation, I imagine, you know, good in, instinct at the moment on that. But that will take time. But from a client perspective, a, a consumer perspective, you know, there will be no difference. I think there will be an interest, you know, there will always be, you know, a group that will say, you know, I, I quite like saying that I've got a, you know, a crypto back mortgage or whatever it might be, right? There's something about that in terms of a proposition and that will appeal to a certain persona. But at the end of the day, the back end banking system is whether you're in a in a neo bank or in a large global bank, you know, you lend money, you give it back out, people save. And between all those transactions, all the different exchange rates net into are you going to make a profit or not? That is the thing. So the benefit really then comes into the organization. So if you're looking at, you know, blockchain, you're looking at distributed ledger or any different types of technology, 
that will create a different sort of distributed network in terms of how that portfolio is managed and how that works through. But it will also create the ability to transact more quickly. Now, in, in the case of the mortgage, once you've got one set up, you know, your monthly payment comes out unless we redefine the mortgage market. So it's really sort of that middle space where there's opportunity. And I think there is opportunity for innovation between the two, right, between the day-to-day bank and the mortgage. There is a whole suite of things that get interesting. But that is then really about redefining marketplace. I love it. Okay, so knowing we only have a couple of minutes here, I'd like each of you to kind of tell us what you're most excited about. And that can be a specific technology, a startup, a trend. I know that you guys are all very good about not playing favorites with things that are emerging. But just curious, from your lens, what do you jump out of bed and, and think about that you think is going to be a big, exciting innovation on the way? And Misha, I'll start with you. Okay. It might not strike people that these are both fintech-related, but they are, and I think they're huge markets. One is looking at how the major digital advertisers have been affected negatively by Apple's IDFA or ATT regulation. Those are both regulations that mean consumers have to opt in to having their data tracked and and given to Facebook and Instagram and so forth for advertising. Advertising is a huge market. I think that PayPal with a super app and a number of new super apps that are financial platforms first will start owning transactions and then being the only ones that consumers regularly access and share data with and thereby be able to take some of the market share for ad dollars away from traditional ad giants and and bring them into financials. And I think that will happen in mature markets like the U.S. first, but but it's going to take some time. Uh, The second thing is, you know, when you just pull back and you look at markets and how a normal retail investor who's an American is supposed to combat inflation and save for retirement, they can't all be just in public equities anymore. The Warren Buffett model is not going to do well for millennials and Gen Z. They need to have exposure to alternative assets. Um, And right now there's a lot of things preventing that, right? Uh, Income limits, deal flow access, sourcing, underwriting. So I've invested in a couple of platforms and businesses that are structured around making alternative assets more liquid and eventually getting them accessible by retail and smaller investors in a commercial way so that they can have a properly balanced portfolio. I love both of those. We've we've done a lot of work in what they call the cookie-less future to your first point about the advertising market. I think it's very interesting uh-huh. thinking about how a PayPal or somebody like that can start to steal some of that share. Uh, and obviously the idea of uh, alternate investments is uh, couldn't be more red hot. I love, I love both of those. Great examples. Kristen, what about you? Yeah, no, I mean, mine is a little bit, I think, similar to what Nisha was saying. And it's, um, you know, sort of the integration of financial services and the web, right? I mean, we're going to have, because of crypto networks, all of these new monetization models for creators or just everyday users, right? To be able to own their data, to be able to control when to use it, to be able to pull it back when they want, and to be able to find value in everything from web browsing to a piece of art that they created or a song or something they've written. It's really this idea of bringing ownership to the web and integrating that with you know payments on the web that I think is really going to be a source of economic empowerment for people who you know might not ha- otherwise have access to such networks. So I think there's just um, 
I think crypto networks in general have a democratizing effect, but the, the sort of web free element where people have an ownership in the content that they create on the web, even if it's something as simple as browser data is like super exciting and uh, will provide new sources of revenue and, and yeah, be very disruptive to some of the more established uh, tech platforms out there today. I think it's amazing that we had all the acronyms we used and we were talking about blockchain and we never said NFT. Uh, which, which <laughs> That's is another, another day. <laughs> yeah, I feel like we should have won some sort of award. We're the only uh, conversation not to use those three letters. <laughs> not a fan, says Nisha, uh, of NFTs. I love it. Dax, got two minutes. What are you most excited about? I am most excited about the degree of industry collaboration that that's here. And, um, you know, I am recognizing that, um, you know, the, the folks that are very clued in on diversity and those diverse perspectives in a collaborative sense, again, are the, the organizations that are really going to thrive in the, in the future. So that really, um, you know, does hit it for me. And, and I would say, you know, I mean, clearly there are different technologies. There's integration. Yes, you know, digital twins and all the rest of it. But actually starting to synthesize some of that oh boy, that's going to get interesting. Well, thank all three of you for, for taking the time to share your insights with us all. And thank you everyone for joining us today. You'll see within the Philo setting where you're watching, there's all sorts of sort of other links to more information about Venture Fuel as well as uh, each, each of our very esteemed uh, panelists here and really have enjoyed the conversation. So thank you all for, for making the time and uh, look forward to seeing you next time. Absolutely. Thank you for having us. Take care. Thank you all. Thanks so much for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed the episode. I want to invite you also uh, to sign up for our Rogue Women event, March 24th, 12 p.m. Eastern time. All you have to do is go to LinkedIn at VentureFuel for all the details. It is our most attended event each year. It is incredibly dynamic, very similar to this event uh, that you just listened to. Uh, And also please subscribe to the podcast. We have lots of amazing guests coming up in the next couple of weeks. Uh, And thanks so much, as always, for listening.